This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. Great to have you with us on today's episode, talking sustainable and ethical travel in our climate conversations in partnership with Dubai Holding. Finding out what the Jumeirah Group is doing when it comes to things behind the scenes and that the guests might see as well. Wild Tracks is a travel company helping local communities and wildlife abroad. And we had our skincare clinic with nurse Sarah. Discussing parental burnout with not one but two psychologists, including the author of a brand new book about raising a happier mother. And it was Dr. Thryer explaining what makes a person selfish and how you can tackle it in your life. Climate Conversations on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With Dubai Holding, together for the good of tomorrow. Fantastic to have you with us for our climate conversations in partnership with Dubai Holding. And we're talking travel today and actually going beyond reusing your towels next time you stay in a hotel. What you need to know before booking your next trip, the role of a guest when it comes to saving the planet. And who better to speak to than Brian Tate? She's the Global Senior Director of Sustainability at the Jumeirah Group. Um, Brian, you've been working in this space for quite some time. Are you okay to speak personally about why sustainability is so important to you? I've been an environmentalist since I was a kid, um, you know, spending a lot of time with my grandparents out in nature, you know, nagging my parents to recycle, you know, building a little compost heap in the back. Um, and, you know, as an adult, as a parent now, I'm increasingly worried about the planet that my son will inherit. Um, so this is something that's very personal for me, absolutely. So when we're talking travel, I'm curious to get your take from the hospitality front. Do you think the average guest's kind of care about how sustainable their stay is that is that a priority for them the studies from from organizations like expedia booking.com you know the 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 brands that we all know um they've done studies around this and you know some of the results show that like 90 percent of travelers are now looking for you know sustainable options when they're traveling and and that cuts across you know environmental to supporting local communities and local cultures so they're much more mindful travelers now i think I wondered if you could perhaps share some initiatives across Jumeirah that other guests might have noticed in, in recent months and years. You know, taking, taking plastic water bottles out of circulation is such a massive change, I think. And for us, you know, we're looking at taking 9 million plastic water bottles out of circulation. So just try to visualize that mountain of water bottles that are no longer, you know, going to landfill or going to, re- you know, recycling plants where they're already overwhelmed. Mm. Um, you know, so in addition to this, we're, we're doing a lot of things across the board from, uh, like, for example, at Zabil Sarai, you could visit our hydroponic vertical farm where we're growing our own vegetables. Um, you know, I'm not sure how much our, our local listeners know about our dirt, our, our Dubai Turtle Rehabilitation Project. Oh, it's uh, one of my highlights of the year, seeing seeing some of those turtles mm-hmm. being released back. It's um, and such a lovely thing, I think, as, as we touched on there, for children to see when you're visiting um, you know, Jumeirah Island theme and seeing what's what's incorporated into that space. It's a it's a beautiful project. Where Where is it currently at? What are you working on right now? It's housed between um, the, the base of the Burj Al Arab and then at Al Nassim we have the Turtle Lagoon where, you know, families and guests can go experience that. Um, and what we've recently decided on for that actually is a pilot coral nursery where we're actually trying to regrow um, coral species so that we can kind of contribute to that biodiversity commitment. 
Um, so we're quite excited about that. Let's see where the results take us. But it's um, it's great to be able to contribute to our coastal ecosystems, which is what our tourism industry is really, you know, primarily based on. Is mm-hmm. taking advantage of those beautiful beaches and the coastal ecosystems that we rely on. What about even things like the buildings themselves? You know, the hotel properties and the supporting buildings. Are there any technologies or advancements that have been incorporated with sustainability front and center? Yeah, I mean, those are the things that are really invisible, right? That's where the energy gets consumed. That's where the water gets consumed. And air conditioning is, you know, that's half of our, our energy kind of footprint um, as 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 we operate our, our properties. It's, it's a huge draw in energy. So it's something that we're very, you know, conscious of managing wherever we can. So there's a lot of invisible work that goes into our sustainability, you know, program and managing our footprint and a lot of things that um, you just don't see on the surface of them. But those are huge parts of of what we're doing in our sustainability programming. Now, can we talk food? (laughs) Um, And I've started to notice, you know, on Jumeirah menus and actually across the UA and rightly so, people caring a lot more about the province of their food. You know, I think wanting to know, you know, the country, the farm, you know, super specifics is really wonderful. I think it means we value our food more. We think we think more about it and hopefully wasting it less. But that kind of term farm to fork, I think is often kind of misused and somewhat still misunderstood. What does it mean to you, Brian? And, and can you tell us a little bit about what's actually happening in practice across Jumeirah properties? And food circularity. Um, you know, six billion deer hunts worth of food every year is wasted in the UAE. So it's really important that we know, first of all, where does our food come from? And then second of all, how do we minimize the waste that comes from that food production and sort of creating of those, you know, great dishes or, or even even what we cook at home? Um, so what about food waste initiatives um, within Jumeirah? Anything that's happening there? And how quantifiable is it? How measurable is it? One of the pilots that we tried during Ramadan, actually, was this concept called nudges, which is very subtle hints with our guests on reminding them try not to sort of have that your eyes are bigger than your stomach and take more food than you can eat so it could be very small things like just very slightly smaller plates or little note cards on the table reminding them you know just take what you can eat come back as often as you want um and and interestingly that did have an impact like we saw that something like 15 percent of food waste could be reduced just by very subtle reminders to people to think about the food that they are kind of loading up on. Um, And then, you know, on the back end, I think technology plays a really important role. Uh, We use something called Winnow, for example, which uses artificial intelligence to measure, predict, and then help us reduce our food waste throughout the whole sort of value chain of, you know, when we procure the food, where are we getting it from locally, but then how do we optimize what we're buying and then producing what we're producing and then ensure whatever does end up on the back end um, is, is, is managed responsibly. I think what this really speaks to, to my mind, is that we all have a role to play. You know, there's an element of, you know, chefs putting together a menu thoughtfully using local produce and, you know, thinking about food wastage. There's the, the bigger picture when we're looking at buildings. But what about us as guests, Brian? What, do you, what kind of changes would you like to see guests making? I think, you know, just having a staycation for the listeners in Dubai 
um, th- there are so many experiences that, that you can have locally right here in our own backyard um, in Dubai and UAE. I think, you know, seeking out local artisans, local culture, supporting the local economy, taking that local mindset, even when you're traveling as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, we offer electric vehicles now uh, for pickup and, and transfer service. So you can now travel, you know, super green when you're, when you're on the ground here with us. And I think engaging us on the topic across the board, you know, having those conversations with our teams on site and, 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 and let's hear what others have to say, bring those ideas, ask the questions. I think it's all about a conversation. We're a guest centric organization and we want to, we want to deliver that experience. And so we, we love to hear from our guests what those questions and ideas might be. I think that feel good factor, you know, can take many forms. And for me, reducing the guilt around, you know, around a vacation, you're thinking, okay, you know, yes, we're staying within the UAE. We're not thinking about plane travel. We're going to a property that is aligned with our values, whether it is, you know, plastics or food wastage or bigger things that we're not even aware of. It's so, so crucial. Um, Brianne, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been it's been an absolute pleasure to hear about what's been happening at Jumeirah Group. And I'm, I'm curious to see what you've got planned for the coming weeks and, and years, because I, I, I've got a sense from you that there's a lot, a lot, a lot in the pipeline. So thank you so, so much. Thanks so much, Helen. Climate Conversations on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With Dubai Holding, together for the good of tomorrow. We've just been talking there about sustainable travel, locally staycations with the Jumeirah Group. But what about internationally? If you're looking for ethical travel that can help local communities, their wildlife, our next guest can help you with that. Chloe Evans organises trips with Wild Tracks and she's here to tell us a little bit more. Now, you're a passionate advocate for the environment and this has led you from working with animals to now preserving them. Tell us a little bit about your mission with Wild Tracks and where the idea came from. Thanks for having me back, Helen. Pleasure. So Wild Tracks is basically about taking people from all different groups, ethnicities, cultures, um, whether they're small children, adults, etc., to really experience the need um, to protect wildlife. You know, the imminent fact is that possibly in, you know, 50 to 100 years, the next generation, they're not going to be able to experience animals in the wild. So Wild Tracks is all about hands-on conservation missions. So it's your typical safari, you know, the, the nice lodges and, you know, having a nice time in South Africa. But it's also about the actual hands-on veterinary work. So we're looking at um, dehorning rhinos, collaring lions, uh, also going into the local communities as well to really see how that impact is uh, affecting the whole ecosystem. I want to hear a little bit more about those communities in a minute, but I just want to come back to your point there about dehorning rhinos why is that such a crucial aspect of what you're doing can you paint us a bit of a bigger picture about why this is a problem it's definitely so rhinos are uh, critically endangered in the wild and this is basically for their horns and the horns are completely valueless you know they're just keratin it's the same as our fingernails and our hair it grows back it has no medicinal values no status value. Um, but unfortunately, over years, this is something that has been affecting them. And, you know, this is why we need to do these protection um, initiatives. So basically, a dehorning is when you locate the rhino. Um, we normally try and group them together. So it's least stress for the animal. And talking about sustainable travel, it's all about, you know, making sure that our helicopter costs and uh, veterinary costs, etc., are kept down. Um, so basically, what we do is we... Um, um, 
we first of all we dart the animal and this is to give it like a tranquilizer and it basically makes the animal go to the ground mm-hmm. um and then when it's safe to do so we go up to the rhino and we basically measure um two to three centimeters from the root because they still have some nerve endings there so we don't want to harm or endanger the animal at all and then we basically saw off at this point and the aim is that every 12 to 18 months this will grow back but it acts as a deterrent for poachers so they don't come and obviously hurt or kill the rhinos can i ask how you choose to work with the communities because there's two aspects here there's you know supporting them on ground and making sure that they've got you know great conditions in terms of working but there's also the sustainable pact in terms of some of the projects that they're undergoing can you tell us a little bit about more about some of the people you're working with in Africa yeah so we work with some really great organizations um, one of them is wild connections and as part of the trip with wild tracks you go at least for one day in the community and this is to actually meet the people help to educate them and make them aware of the impact of poaching and obviously the need to conserve the wildlife Um, We also uh, support some initiatives here. So there's a group of ladies within one community and they are actually collecting like plastic bags from the street, bin bags, bread bags. um, And they've created quite an initiative now where a lot of the community people are collecting these. And what they're doing is they're recycling them into things like hats, bath mats. Uh, They're really nice pieces, actually. And we take the groups there. They can obviously contribute back to the uh, local community and economy by purchasing these. We also are connected with an organization called the Battleers, and these are a group of um, voluntary pilots, and they are doing some amazing projects such as, you know, pangolin rescue missions. They're relocating animals to keep the genetic, you know, diversity within the parks. Um, Also working with the likes of Project Rhino and Rhino Art. So they actually go into the communities and they educate the children about the awareness of poaching um, and the need to protect rhinos. And they do these amazing competitions for the kids. Um, They have to like draw these little pictures of rhinos. And then if they win or they have a good concept, they actually get to go into the parks. Because a lot of these children, they don't actually have visited. And this, um, this is the, the real point of interest, isn't it? It's, it's in their community and it's in their you know, country and their culture, but they might not have had that, that value, understood the nature of the animal. And yeah. it, it, all, it all starts there with the, with the children, you know, as Brian was just talking there about the next generation. Um, can we talk about accommodation on ground when yeah, it comes definitely. to sustainability there? What, uh, what's, what's the space like? How eco-friendly are the, some of the lodges and the accommodation that you're working with? Yeah, so all the accommodation is actually on the reserve. Um, so usually, I mean, the three reserves we work with, they normally have it uh, like a slight split. So one of them will be your big five. So your what's seen as maybe dangerous animals. And then you have the game side. So giraffe, zebra, and you're literally living amongst them. It's great. Um, All the accommodation is very eco-friendly. Solar panels, um, they have load shedding in South Africa. Don't know whether that's a point to to discuss or not. But um, this is also about being conscious about using electricity Mm -hmm. and the consumption. Um, It's just about being at one with nature. So everyone is really conscious of what they're using and how. And presumably lots of lovely local food as well. Definitely. All locally sourced food. Um, you know, there's uh, people from the communities are working in the accommodations with us. So you get to meet the chef, uh, try some amazing South African cuisine. Milk tart is like my favourite dessert. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, it's really nice. Chloe, can I ask you a little bit about the interest in this? Because I feel like our, and I hope this is this is true of a lot of people, our tastes are changing when it comes to travel. And that there is absolutely a place 
for lying on a beach and having a lovely time with a rubbish book, 100%. But I feel like we're starting to value our vacation leave a lot more. And maybe that's a reflection, you know, post-pandemic of thinking about, I want to travel, but I want to be getting something out of it as well, these these experiences. What are you noticing when it, t- when it comes to trends and interest? Yeah, I think people nowadays are liking to see the direct impact they're having. Um, so rather than, you know, just putting their hard-earned money, like you say, in their hard-earned annual leave days, um, they want to see the value back. So when they go on these trips, they actually get to see with their eyes where their money is going, the impact they're having on the animals, the communities. And I think that's something that money just can't buy. It's such a special experience. And, you know, instead of going to these kind of places where you see animals drugged or in cages, you're still getting the same experience that you get to see them in real life and up close and touch them and feel them. But it's, it's for the best impact of them, it's to preserve them so their children can see them in 50 years' time. I know you're working really hard on upcoming trips. Is there anything you can share now? Any dates for the diary for upcoming wild adventures with wild trucks? Yep, so our season is going to run from March to September next year. Uh, we've got around 14 trips booked in. Wow. Um, yeah, but there's still lots of spaces available. We'll be releasing the date soon. These are going to be family-friendly trips, so with young children, um, also some over-40s trips with a little bit more of a relaxation and sundowners. Um, we're hoping to take um, some school groups, also some teachers' groups. So we're really focusing on like the Eid holidays, summer holidays when people are off. Thank you so much for coming in and opening our eyes to what, what you're working on and thinking about sustainable travel in terms of what's happening on ground, but also that ethical travel, that feel-good factor as well. Now, if anyone wants to get in touch and find out more about the upcoming trips, you know, find out more from Chloe, you just send me the word wild, I'll send you her Instagram, and then you'll be the first to know about what's on the agenda. And yeah, you mentioned March then. My, I've heard there's a very long break coming up at March. It's going to be Eid and spring break together, so... yeah. You might be hearing from me, Chloe. Thank you so, so much. If, as I said, if you want to find out more about these initiatives, these upcoming travel, um, you're more than welcome to just send me the word wild and I'll send you the details for Chloe Evans and Wild Tracks. Talking parenting this hour and parental burnout for many parents, the reality of juggling the demands of caring responsibilities on their time, their energy, their resources, leaves them with little time to take care of their own well-being. And this can result in parental burnout. Now, the exploration of this is relatively new, but research has identified it as being a prevalent issue across global communities and cultures. And I know it's a thing right here in the UAE, which is why we are talking about it with psychologist Jocelyn Gracias from Thrive Wellbeing Centre. And I should say, a parent of a toddler. Um, yes. <laughs> I, and I, I say this because I've had numerous um, experts on the show before who talk about children and parenting without being parents themselves. And I go, that's very nice to hear the, the nutritional advice you've got for my children, but you've clearly never sat down with a child to eat. So you're speaking to us as an expert, but also perhaps as someone from the trenches as well, Jocelyn. Yes, very much. And I think I, I should say I'm right there in the middle <laughs> in in an age that is not so great. And I think parental burnout is something that is really around the corner every move I make. Well, let's talk about what that looks like. It's not necessarily a psychological definition or a clinical diagnosis, but it is something that we can really start to point to in terms of signs and symptoms, which we'll explore. So how do you define it? So I would say that parental burnout is, it's a combination of physical tiredness and mental exhaustion. It's basically when you, the, world, the word overwhelmed just feels 
too big, mm-hmm. right? And it's a lot of emotional distress that makes you. So one of the most common statements I hear when I work uh, with my clients, when I work at Thrive, is that they say, I don't feel like myself anymore. You know, I just, you know, I have so many goals and I want to do so much. And I, I catch myself at the end of the day with no energy no motivation, mm-hmm. you know, and in a way, no willpower and even belief in myself. So there's a few things at play there because that sounds like a big identity piece as well. Yes. You know, if someone is you know, taking a step away from work to, to raise a young child or is a working parent who's juggling and, you know, like I feel an awful lot of the time, very torn, yeah. really torn. You know, I, I, I did it last night. I got home from work, you know, wearing headphones for three hours in the afternoon and I, I need a bit of kind of quiet time before I go into my next role which is and I love it I love them both but I love I I truly do and feel very lucky to have both of just having children you know throwing themselves at me fighting over me and I'm sure when they're teenagers I'll look back and go god wasn't that lovely when the girls were just fighting over me but completely overstimulated yeah yeah and I think you've used exactly the right word overstimulated because I feel like we are tackling so many different roles And there is no space or a breather in between those roles. And you just have 24 hours. And in those 24 hours, you're fitting in so many different things and you're feeling. And when this keeps going on and on, that's when it leads to parental burnout, right? Because you're not basically doing anything about it. A lot of time it can just go very unnoticed. How common is this, Jocelyn? It is very common. You know, I I think, um, you know, as a psychologist working uh, with different clients, I would say that parental burnout is something very common. And, you know, sometime back, you just said something about clinical diagnosis. I feel like if we don't identify parental burnout, then you're going to you're going to go further down that road and would be then needing a clinical diagnosis. We're going to talk about that next. When does this very normal, and let's be honest, sense of overwhelm and exhaustion and financial pressures and relationship suffering, when does that tip into something that you might need some professional help? Jocelyn Gracias from Thrive Wellbeing Centre Psychologist in the studio today as we discuss parental burnout. And I found some questions that we can ask ourselves to identify if we have got parental burnout. Can I read them out to you and see if it rings true? Uh, Yes, please. Okay. Do you feel completely exhausted by parenting? Does getting a good night's sleep not help with the exhaustion? Do you feel overwhelmed by everything you have to do as a parent? Do you feel like you're an autopilot or some kind of survival mode? Do you feel like you're no longer the parent you want to be? Do you feel any shame or guilt about your current parenting abilities? Do you feel angry, frustrated or trapped by your situation as a parent? And are you pulling away emotionally from your children? Is it hard for you to be around them? And there were a couple of those questions that I feel kind of really get to the to the root of what we're talking about today was, are you no longer the parent you want to be? I think a lot of people will go, this isn't what I was expecting and this is not the relationship I want to be having with my kid yeah. and that last one are you pulling away emotionally from your children is it hard for you to be around them because parental burnout is very normal We're, you know whether you are a working parent whether you're at home with the kids everyone's got a lot on their plate the exhaustion the logistics are completely overwhelming at times but when you start to disconnect from your kids is that something of a red flag for you as a psychologist? Oh, yes, definitely. And I think uh, when, I, when I work uh, with my clients, I think I see that quite often. 
a lot of my clients would say, uh, you know, that I, I don't know how to coexist with my parents anymore, so with my kids anymore. And I, I don't know how to relate to them anymore. Like as if, you know, as if I'm completely disconnected from them. And that's, that's, I think, where an, an extreme way of when you keep feeling that burnout over and over again, mm. and we don't notice it, we don't identify it, we don't do anything about it. And I think that the other, the other couple of words that stuck out to me there was about shame and guilt. Yes, you know, the I shame. actually have a lot to say about that tell today. Me, tell me, right? So, the, guilt is actually one of the main reasons. So, a lot of times you hear hashtag mom guilt, dad guilt, parent guilt. I would say dad guilt less. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, I, I would agree. Uh, even in my in in my line of work, I see you know a lot of mothers you know coming in terms of you know mom guilt area being really really high up there. It's a really big one for me, and my husband yeah. would often be like, I just don't know why you feel guilty about it. I'm like, I would love for it to be that simple and I just wouldn't, but I just right. can't. Yeah. And I feel like even though I know that, I mean, gender is completely a different topic altogether, but I think it is related, right? Where the way we take responsibility and see responsibility and want to, and perfectionism is another theme that actually mm-hmm. brings that guilt in right there and keeps it there. And guilt is, so basically I always say this to my clients or anybody I'm talking to about guilt we have to check for intention, right? What's my intention for that to happen, right? And I think that word intention is very important because it's very easy to feel guilty and then blame, mm-hmm. you know, like internalize that. And that actually causes a lot of uh, trauma more, you know, and it's just causing a lot of uh, difficulties with your own sense of self. I think um, something I always kind of come back to is that if you are having a tough time and you're, and you're worried about being a good enough parent, you're already an amazing parent because the fact that you care enough to feel to feel guilty and to feel worried and to think about how could I do better shows your depth of love. It, that, you know, it really does. Yeah, that's really well said because that's also something that I fall on as a parent and while working with my clients is that that word care is so important there because all of this that we're feeling is because we want our kids to thrive and we want you know us to be better parents and i think in in that whole wanting all of that we kind of sometimes lose that and and that takes a toll on us can we talk about some strategies to manage it and even accept parental burnout jocelyn what 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 would you advise to someone inclined and to people listening today right so one of the very important thing that I would say is there are different ways to look at parental burnout. Like if you see burnout as a pattern, right? So it could be something to do with childhood trauma. So so parent could have childhood traumas, attachment traumas that constantly keep coming in your way as a parent and constantly making you feel like you're not doing a good job. Mm -hmm. So then addressing those would be very, very important. So, you know, you could address those through therapy, you could address those through your self-work, you know, or with a social uh, or a good support system, right? Uh, A couple of other patterns is when you're not very good with boundary setting. 
you know, when you're not very good in saying no, when you're not good in asking help. Delegating. Delegating. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You know, and I, I see so many people struggling with that because somewhere there is a concept in, in, uh, with some parents that, but if I do that, how am I a good parent? Oh, I'm not good enough. I, if I'm I not good help. enough as a parent, you know, and I think that's that's the belief that we need to work on. Mm. Right. Because you you are a good parent because you are not neglecting your delegating. So that's such a creative way to deal with scenario. And and we have to understand that it's a caregiving team. So, yes, there are there is a parent, there are other caregivers, maybe there are grand, grandparents, but we all a team. Mm-hmm. Right. And our goal is to help that kid thrive. And if, if I'm not going to let that team help me and support me, and then it's all going to fall on me while maybe I'm working. And even if even if I'm, you know, at home and taking care of everything, it's still a lot. Right. And all of that then takes a huge toll on us. And the other pattern that I would say is the lack of self-compassion. And I think there's a lot of confusion between self-love and self-compassion. Self-love is you saying, I want to do this because I know it will benefit me and I care about myself and I want to do that. Self-compassion is is slightly deeper than that. Self-compassion is basically your ability to stand by your side when things are tough, right? Calming that voice inside your head that's constantly telling you you're not a good parent, you're not doing okay, you you know, you need to do better, right? You need to prioritize your kids more, mm-hmm. you, Calming that voice, you need self-compassion by your side. And I think that's another very big theme. I see that people struggle with self-compassion and it's very evident in, in the way they behave, even as parents, even as employees everywhere in their life. We've got Justin Gracias with us today, psychologist at Thrive. Um, I want to get the text line. We've had an anonymous message here saying, hi, both. Amazing timing and thank you. Uh, my daughter's 14 months old and she's always been quite a demanding baby, had reflux from birth. I can genuinely say I've not had a full night's sleep since she was born. Now she's crying, crying, whining, throws tantrums. I think it's frustration on her part that she can't verbalise. My husband's working really long hours. I don't get a break. Um, with a constant tiredness, mental and physical exhaustion, I'm starting to feel burnt out and terrible as I feel like I'm just going through the motions looking after her. I love her with all my heart, but I just feel like the situation I'm in with no help is making it all worse. Not a question as such, just wanted to share. Well, right. far from alone, as I said, looking at the messages I've had on Instagram about this, an awful lot. And that's not just, I mean, 14 months old, that is a, that is a tough age. But I've seen messages from people going all the way up to teens, you know, different ages, different stages, different problems. Yeah. But to this listener, you know, I think she's coming off the back who talked about the, about self-compassion is, is right. really key. But if, if this mum came and sat with you in clinic, what, what would you be advising her? I think, first of all, it would be very important for me to kind of help help her that be seen you know because a lot of times we feel very alone in our struggles even though to struggle means to be human i don't think that's the subtext when we are in trouble or when we are in that struggle mm-hmm. right so the first thing is just helping my client or or or, or this mother to 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 understand that what she's going through is so normal because half the time the the narrative in our head is that maybe I'm the only one who's going through this. Maybe there's something wrong with me. You know, why is, you know, is only there's something wrong with only my child who's doing this. So helping them. And I think, you know, I, I, I have a toddler. So that stage was not far away where I was waiting for my full night's sleep. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 
so I also kind of bring in a lot of my own experiences into my sessions. And I really see my clients' eyes go like, whoa, wow, that's that's a relief. And that feels good. And we are lucky here in Dubai that there are a number of you know companies, organizations, initiatives, groups, where you can go and go along and have a cup of coffee or, you know, a piece of cake or, a, you know, a play meetup. And I just hope that enough people are vulnerable in those situations to say, this has been a rough morning mm-hmm. or I'm really struggling with this. Have you had that? And, and what helped? Because the veneer we put on motherhood in particular, I get it. I've done it. But it can be so, so damaging to our own mental health, but also yeah. to those around us, because we're missing out on those ch- opportunities to connect and help each other. Right. And, you know, there's another very important aspect that we are kind of not looking at here is especially after you've given birth, there's postpartum. So there's postpartum anxiety, there's postpartum depression, or there's mix. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a mix of depression and anxiety. So how how are we dealing with that? I know so many of the parents or mothers that I work with come in, not realizing that that's what they're going through. Mm. You know, so I think that awareness, you know, exactly what we're doing here, that awareness can really help us feel it's okay. I'm going through this. You know, sometimes it's all as simple as trying to connect with your body, trying to connect with yourself and know that you can get through this. Um, to Mystery Listener, I do have your number. I'm going to send you Jocelyn's details so you can connect with her and I'll send you a few groups as well that I would recommend. Thank you so much for your time today. I um, really appreciate it, especially as a, a busy a busy juggler and struggler yourself, Jocelyn. So thank you so much for coming in and talking about this. I think it's really, really valuable. For anyone that does want your details, is that okay if I share them with on, on the SMS? Oh, yes, okay. please. Uh, yeah, definitely. Send me, the, send me the word parent. I'll send you the details website on Thrive so you can find out more about Jocelyn and getting some one-on-one help if that's something that you think would be beneficial on parental burnout but any aspect of being a young person um, or indeed an adult here in the UAE. Justin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Continuing our discussions on parental burnout now with Anna Mather. She is a mum of three, UK-based psychologist, and her new book just came out a few days ago. It's called Raising a Happier Mother and she's a firm believer that sometimes Lowering the bar of perfection is the key to a happy family. Fantastic to have you joining us from the UK on Teams now. How Anna? How are you, Anna? I'm good. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's great to be here again. Congratulations on the publication. Book looks absolutely fantastic. And I know it's already been really well received by the psychology community and, and tribes of parents who, who really needed it. Can you explain a little bit about what your mission was with this book? And yeah, who you had in mind when you were writing it? Do you know what I had uh, myself in mind, really? Because I have got to the left of me right now this this absolutely massive bookshelf full of parenting books, <laughs> everything from like feeding and behaviour. It's all there. And I, I get them with the best intentions. Like they drop through my letterbox and I feel like a better parent just for buying them. But in truth, when it comes down to the moments of stress and chaos in my house, I realise that I couldn't access any of that useful information. Mm. I couldn't think, right, wait a minute. What was I meant to say to my kid in this situation? I'm just there kind of screaming in my kitchen, losing, you know, losing my core and then feeling really guilty about it. So I thought a massive challenge that us parents face is that we just live in this kind of 
kind of low level stress state so when things happen and you know chaos happens in parenting often we don't respond in a way that we want to so how can we give ourselves a little bit more contingency so that in those moments we actually have a space to think how do I want to respond so the whole book is basically a book to read before you read any of the other parenting books because ultimately <laughs> we need to start parenting ourselves as, as mums and well, looking after ourselves. I, thank you for your generosity in sharing that because it's, it's very encouraging to hear a psychologist can lose it as well. And I was just chatting to uh, Jocelyn earlier who's got a toddler and I was like, do you not feel a huge sense of responsibility as a psychologist and a parent to not screw up your kid given how much information you have? And she was like, yeah. And then, you know, these are, you know, you guys are experts. You've got so much you know, access to information and research. But as you say, the actual real life application of this can feel like a massive, massive disconnect. You know, the tools that we've got at our fingertips and like much like me, you know, I'm so lucky to speak to people like you, you know, and and be able to learn from you and, and share that with listeners. But again, we've got so much information, but when it comes down to it, I lose my cool so much more. And then it becomes this shame spiral of the guilt and, you know, no one else does this. And I'm, you know, and of course, that's not the case. Of course, it's not. So I think you've really tapped into something. When we're thinking about parental burnout and breaking points, what do you think that looks like for a lot of parents? Yeah, I mean, it, it looks like that total inability to do or respond in any way that your ideal world would like And for me, that's looked like, I remember this moment, it was in the pandemic, actually, and my husband was upstairs working and I was in the kitchen cooking dinner. Everyone, everyone was like shouting at me, my kids, it was just, I messaged him and I said, you need to come down. I need to swap out. I need to take a breath. Anyway, he didn't get the message. We didn't see it. I know. So 15 minutes later, I was like the steam cooker that exploded. I screamed like it was this kind of carnal roar that came out from deep inside of me. And it just like, ah, oh, it all just came out. And he came running down with his laptop and his phone saying, sorry, guys, I, I think I've got to go here. And I was just filled with so much shame. And I, and I hear stories from so many parents in this way where we overlook our own needs so chronically and invalidate our own emotions so chronically that it all just boils up and can end up exploding in the messiest most uncontrolled sometimes damaging Mm -hmm. shame prompting ways yep yep you're speaking to someone who last week when my kids are loving fighting with each other right now it seems to be their favorite thing they can fight over they could literally fight over anything about who's looking at who in a funny way about you know portions of snacks over me an awful lot and the other morning they were fighting over the bathroom door you know who was going to brush their teeth and who wants privacy and who wants to be you know sitting on the other one's lap on the toilet you know just craziness and I was like we do not play with doors in this house and they continue to play with the door and I completely lost it slammed my bedroom door at volume and screamed I'm not going to scream at the volume on the radio, but basically, you're not the only one who can play with doors and had to sit and kind of have a cry for five minutes. And then Mm -hmm. emerged five minutes later. I was like, it's okay. I've I've had my scream. Everything's fine. But they looked at me terrified. And that just hung over my whole day that I was like, I've completely, I've I've, I've completely damaged them. You know, it was just horrendous to see how frightened they were by me losing it and god i could cry now um but yeah i was so horrified at myself it's it's awful it's a horrible feeling and we all want to do better but we hold ourselves to such high standards and i I wondered where do you think our idea of these kind of 
perfect parents come from and do they actually exist these perfect parents because i don't think i want to be no they don't okay good (laughs) no they don't they don't and i'm with you they don't sit sit on my table um (laughs) but no they don't exist and i think the thing is with all of this amazing research and information all these amazing books that we have access to there is an ideal of course there's an ideal um but we we then pressure ourselves to actually meet that ideal when in reality we are messy people imperfect people with imperfect children living in an imperfect world so a lot of the time we're just scrabbling around trying to do the best that we can and I think you know we are given this ideal because we can do that with the amount of research that we can do now that we we have access to so we've kind of built this image in our minds and then obviously I think social media is great for kind of those highlights and just almost confirming the fact that there is a possibility to this total fantasy Mm. and I think we just need to recognise that we will mess up our kids. We will. Um, But if we start mothering ourselves and looking after ourselves, we're less likely to do so in such a bad way. Mm -hmm. And and actually, you know, a perfect parent doesn't prepare a child to navigate an imperfect world. They will have people cross with them. They will be misunderstood. They will be let down. And as parents, when we misunderstand them or we let them down or we get cross with them, what we can do is teach them how to complete that circle so we can work on the repair. What do we do after? How do we take responsibility? How do we explain that messy moment to them to make them feel safe again, to restore that kind of circle of feeling safe? Mm -hmm. And in doing that, we are teaching them incredible tools for life it's messy but life is um and how do you feel about that old oxygen mask um philosophy that you know you can't look after someone else and you know put your own oxygen mask on first how does how does that kind of play into your thoughts about self-care and self-regulation in terms of being the best parent that is possible given the circumstances that many of us are under yeah, I think it's absolutely vital. I think it's a really important metaphor. And I think often the standard that we have for our children's well-being and mental health is often way higher than the standard that we allow for our own. But if we really think about it, we put a ceiling on our children's mental health, depending on how we value and view our own. And I know, so I get loads of mums say, how do you not feel guilty for taking time for yourself? Well, I'll tell you this, I feel far more guilty when I lose it in my kids and I harm that sense of safety and I do things that I feel ashamed of like I once smashed a plastic plate one morning and my daughter she's four and a half still remembers it and I'm pretty sure it was about two years ago core memory made oh dear (laughs) I know why do they remember everything so well the things that you don't want them to but actually in reality if I had just used that moment to make me think Anna you are burnt out and done in. Because I think often what we do in these moments where we lose it, things get messy. We criticise ourselves. We think you need to try harder. You need to consume more information. You need to be better tomorrow. When in reality, we need to start seeing those moments of signs of depletion and burnout and find some compassion for ourselves and think, you know what? That was a mess. What am I lacking here? What do I need? What support am I missing? What feelings have I not had validated by a friend because I haven't chatted to anyone for a while? Mm-hmm. And then we can we can be more productive and we can start changing things rather than just repeating that cycle, which just it damages our self-esteem when we're constantly criticising ourselves. It really does. And you, you've spoken before about kind of lowering that bar of 
perfection. Where does that come to? Is that to do with, I'm thinking, you know, housework and ironing and social and relationship and parenting? What did that look like for you lowering, lowering that bar and what impact has it had on your happiness and that of the family as well? I think recognising that you literally can't do it all and a lot of people are burnt out for trying and it it just doesn't work. And I think it's knowing that if you're putting everything into one area of your life, you have limited resources. Other areas are going to suffer. So I encourage people, where can you cut corners in life? And for those perfectionists who want to do everything really well, this can be a real challenge of identity of actually, you know, can you just get some ready-made stuff? Can you, I don't know... I don't iron any of my kids' stuff. They're all going back to school tomorrow. I just, I, I don't even know where the iron is, to be honest. You know, I cut corners in ways so that I can preserve myself for other areas. We have limited resources. Um, and I think that's really important to remember when thinking about what you're asking of yourself. Can I ask you, um, do you think it is easier or harder to be a parent now compared to, you know, 30, 40 years ago when, when we were growing up? So I've actually had extensive chats with my mum about this and she would say it's much harder now. I think that's because of a few things, social media and seeing those constant highlights and also just being connected with so many people from so many different phases and stages of our lives when actually before social media and phones, either we just probably wouldn't even still be in touch with half these people. Mm -hmm. So I feel like our quality of connection is so much more thinned out. We've got all these people we feel we need to say happy birthday to and we need to keep in touch with when actually we only have, again, limited capacity for socialising and investing in relationships. So I think we just don't have as many good relationships that feel really supportive where we feel really known, which is a real deep human need. Um, but also, again, all of that access to amazing information, which can end up building this idea of a parent that ultimately is an ideal um, and doesn't often take into account the messy humanness with all of our histories and mysteries and idiosyncrasies and all of those things. So we need to sometimes insert them back in, I think. And from the work that you've done on the book, as I said, it's, it just came out a few days ago, Raising a Happier Mother, How to Find Balance, Feel Good and See Your Children Flourish as a result. What were some of your big takeaways and the big learnings that, that you discovered through writing it, through researching it and, and speaking to other people about what they needed? Yeah, so I think one of them was seeing anger, rage and irritability as a sign of depletion rather than a failure. So I think that's one of it, one of the things. And another is just upping the bar. So lowering the bar in many other ways, but upping the bar of what you count as self-care. So I, I did an Instagram story um, a while back and I said, you know, if you could do one thing every day, implement it into your day. Tiny thing to help with you mentally, physically, what would you do? And loads of people said, I'm going to drink water. I'm going to eat lunch. What? I'm going to have a shower. And I thought, I that's know. And I thought, wait a minute. These are basics. fundamental <laughs> acts of self-respect. These aren't lovely things Luxuries, of, of no. self-care. Exactly. And I think, you know, this is where our bar is often set so low with so many mums that they, my husband doesn't applaud himself for having a shower in the morning. <laughs> you know, tick the box self-care. You, you know, and, and I think, yes, I think it's just, it's knowing that everything you do for yourself is a statement of worth somehow. I love that. Would you, would you treat your children in the way that you treat yourself? Um, if not, why not? Often because it's not good enough and you love them and you wouldn't want to deny them these things or, you know, put this, put these standards upon them. So we need to be parented. We need to be mothered by ourselves and by others. And 
that really helps. Thank you so much. I think some real, yeah, some few light bulb moments going off in the studio and around the UAE <laughs> right now. Um, the book is available now. Um, if anyone wants to send me the word book, I'll send you the link. Um, and if anyone wants to follow you on Instagram, as you just alluded to there, great resource for information for those Me Too moments. What's the best place to find you? So it's just at Anna Martha, which is A-W-N-A-M-A-T-H-U-R. Anna Martha, thank you so much. Um, always an absolute pleasure. Congratulations on the publication and I'm um, adding to thank cart you. immediately. Have a good Amazing. one ahead. Take Thanks care for of having yourself. Me. If you want details of Anna and indeed the book, just send me the word book and I will send you that link. talking selfishness today would you agree that we're all innately selfish to some degree the real challenge seems to be achieving a bit of a balance between healthy selfishness that allows you to become focused rather than self-involved joining us now from the human relations institute and clinic we've got dr thra um dr t it's a it's a contentious one i've got quite a lot of questions and confusion on the text line around it Mm. so i wondered if perhaps maybe you could start by explaining some of the psychological kind of underpinnings of selfishness and entitlement in humans. What, what drives these behaviours? Well, you know, it's a very vast uh, topic, so it's going to be really hard to kind of bring it back down. But it kind of stems from, like a lot of things, it, some of it can stem from your childhood. So if a child, you know, was kind of given everything that they asked for, um, always treated like they were special and important and they didn't have to like work for anything that could definitely be uh, or contribute to selfish or entitled kind of feelings. Uh, There is a lot of social media validation. That's kind of, you know, all everything that's kind of put out there is being validated and recognized by people. And so when someone doesn't agree or, or shares a different type of, you know, opinion, there's, all of these other people to support them. So mm-hmm. obviously, you know, you feel like, oh, okay, so I have such a big in-group, which means I must be correct. Therefore, that's why, you know, I feel the way that I that I feel. Um, or, you know, even people lacking skills and practice and em- emotional regulation. And this definitely comes from a child sense as well. So not being aware of feelings or insecurities that might actually be touched upon when someone disagrees with you. So, and then not knowing how to regulate that. So if you're, as a kid, you, you weren't taught how to regulate your emotions. Instead, you were taught how to shut them down or, you know, suck it up or even, uh, your emotions were negated or invalidated or minimized things like, Oh, it's not that big of a deal. Stop it. Stop being such a baby, you know, things like that. Then usually the the person has a difficulty in kind of understanding how to process their emotions as well. Um, I would definitely say the, the greater number of people that tend to people please that are kind of agreeable that offer loads and loads of compliments and are constantly validating and avoid criticizing or disagreements, it leaves individuals to believe that, oh, okay, so if I'm in an environment that that's like this, then everybody agrees with me. And then that makes it quite problematic because people that tend to be more selfish or tend to be more entitled kind of thrive on that. Mm-hmm. And I would, you know, also say that maybe some what we call, quote unquote, victim entitlement, which is this belief that the world and others kind of owe them that special treatment. So as some form of compensation for anything that they might have experienced in life. Can can we go even even further back? You know, are there any kind of evolutionary or adaptive reasons why humans might display those selfish tendencies? You know, because it's tie into our survival instincts. 
I mean, definitely there is a part of us that we are geared towards protecting ourselves and to protect our kin. Mm -hmm. So essentially we are going to think, we might gear towards thinking of ourselves more than others in certain situations, maybe not all the time. There is an interesting book, I think that was written by um, uh, the UK writer from Oxford. <laughs> I forgot his <laughs> name. Not but something, oh, something on the lines of like the selfish gene or yes, something like that. Yes, it was uh, yes? Richard Dawkins, I think. Yes, yes, that's, that's the gentleman. So, so even, even he had written about how it's very natural for all individuals to, um, to experience traits of, of selfishness. And, and, and to be clear, when we talk about traits, we're on a conti- continuum. There's no such thing as a person who is not selfish mm-hmm. or who only is selfish. There are people who, are, who tend to be more or less, and, and, and especially in certain situations, might waver. So there is a bit of a, you know, a healthy level of selfishness that will, you know, can be beneficial. We're going to be touching on that. But can we talk about maybe the potential for unchecked entitlement in individuals and society as a whole? You know, how does it affect relationships and overall well-being, Dr. T? Oh, I would definitely say that one of the worst things that happens is when you're experiencing that sense of selfishness in your partner. Because what ends up happening is that one person is going to feel like their needs are not met. And this could also be in, in a state of really, uh, friendships as well, where you're feeling like your needs are not met and, and essentially what you care about and what matters to you doesn't matter to the other person, mm-hmm. which ultimately can increase the feeling of I'm not worthy of, of this kind of care, this kind of love, especially if you have those insecurities in and of, of yourself beforehand. So it could be very detrimental to any type of relationship that you have, not just, you know, in friendships or romantic partners, but also even at w- in the workplace and in, in schooling and so on and so forth. Dr. Thry with us today, clinical psychologist. We're talking about selfishness and entitlement. Joining us live on the line from the Human Relations Institute in Clinic, Dr. Thraya, clinical psychologist, as we unpick selfishness, self-entitlement. And I think there's an awful lot of kind of confusion, really, because we're, we're given so many mixed messages about, you know, prioritize yourself, you know, self-care, mm-hmm. and then this kind of tipping into it being problematic. Where do you think those kind of red flags start to go up when selfish behavior starts to manifest? I think you're going to love me again, Helen. It it's depends. Boundaries. <laughs> oh, boundaries. Oh, you didn't get us it this time. It's boundaries. <laughs> it's all about the amount. So essentially, anything that's healthy in terms of selfishness um, comes from a place of I'm not disrespecting somebody else's boundaries, right? So I'm not encroaching on someone else's boundaries. I'm not hurting anybody else. So that's where the, the term or the trait selfishness is still in a if you will, a quote-unquote good area, a healthy area. So you're not really doing anything to harm someone else. So you're Mm. respecting boundaries. Whereas the problem with kind of like entitlement or that sense of entitlement, it's a little bit more complex because that's where a person believes that they deserve these kind of privileges and recognitions even though they haven't necessarily earned it and they believe that other people and even sometimes the whole world owes them, um, but not vice versa. Okay. So what ends up happening is that that usually is far more likely to lead to behaviors that are that are um, hurtful to others more than necessarily that the selfishness piece, because, again, we can be selfish, but we can also have boundaries. So we're not hurting others, whereas that sense of entitlement is kind of difficult to exist without um, 
encroaching on someone else's boundaries. Could you give some examples of, you know, what a sense of entitlement means? Oh, yeah, for sure. So, <laughs> uh, as, a, as a professor, sometimes I have students who want an A, even though they don't work up to the grade, for instance. That ah. could be definitely a sense of entitlement. Um, or influential people or even, you know, just people in general that say, well, they ask, like, do you know who I am? Or don't you know who I am? Or do you know who you're speaking to? This is definitely uh, an influ- like a person who's entitled. Um, a person who demands to be served first just because, you know, they are in a rush or they're late for a meeting or something, even though that's not anybody else's problem except their own. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody who is looking for a full refund, even though they've returned something that's used or damaged by them, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> so these are, these are just highlights of individuals that are quite entitled. Sometimes even people speaking to, to um, you know, individuals who work in the service industry in a very rude and disrespectful manner. This comes from also a sense of entitlement where you think you have the right to speak to somebody in a disrespectful manner just because you have more, let's say, financial means than the other person does. Immediately, I was thinking about driving there. (laughs) Mm. Oh, yes, definitely. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You can see that here all the time. (laughs) Oh, yes. The big ego, you know, part of driving and selfishness and how dare you, you know, take take me off. Yeah. How dare you not let me in? You know, this, this right. kind of idea of, of winning, you know, competitive mm-hmm. spirit. So where can a sense of entitlement come from, Thuraya? We're going to be talking about some of these tricky, toxic phrases after half past, but I want to get a bit of an understanding of roots before we get to uh, how it can manifest in behavior and phrases. So where can a sense of entitlement come from? So interestingly, the sense of entitlement, same as the sense of selfishness, they kind of come from the same place. They come from from this overextension of of pleasing this person. So this could happen in a person's childhood where parents are very permissive or parents are, they don't usually, you know, it's not about punishment or anything like that, but it's just that there is no repercussion or consequence for any type of behavior, mm-hmm. right? And then, and then sometimes people aren't taught the difference between like right or wrong, hurting others and not hurting others and, and considering other people. And of course, there is the downside of that where sometimes we learn to overconsider other people, but that's not what this particular thing is about. Um, definitely, there's a lot that comes in from, you know, lack of skills and practice and emotional regulation that you don't see with parents. So sometimes parents are not great, are not great with their emotional regulation, which then is, of course, going to be adopted by their children, and then children have difficulty emotionally regulating. And so anytime somebody either disagrees with them or doesn't give them what they think that they deserve, there's a massive lash out. And uh, almost like an adult tantrum that that exists because they f- they don't feel like they're getting what they think they deserve. Mm, that's interesting. Okay, we've got a message from Graham here saying, "I'm just struck sometimes by how entitled and self-centered society has become. It seems people are so ready to look at how something is affecting them, but don't see beyond that viewpoint. Some examples would be: this shop or restaurant did something wrong, and I want someone sacked. This friend offended me, so I'm ending the relationship. Somehow, society's lost sight of the values like consideration for others, flexibility, compromise, acceptance that sometimes things don't always go well, forgiveness, awareness that we might be being hard done by, but there's probably someone worse off. Of course, it is a generalisation, and hopefully, the majority of people still hold on to good values. But I feel really sad. To see so much self-centeredness and eagerness to blame creeping in just about everywhere you mm. look. Agree or disagree, Graham? Thank you for that so much. We're going to be going to the text line in just a few minutes. Dr. Thryer joining us live. We're going to be talking about some of the toxic phrases 
the selfish person might use and ultimately what you can do to work with them. Dr. Thraya, clinical psychologist, joining us now from the Human Relations Institute and Clinic as we look at the psychology of selfishness. And it's really interesting to, I guess, take a little pause and examine our own behaviours. We've had a number of messages asking for a bit of clarity on the subject, which we're going to come to very soon indeed. If you want to have your say or want Dr. T's take, 4001, ARN Play App and the WhatsApp too. Now, we've, some toxic phrases have been identified, Dr. Mm. Thraya that highly selfish and entitled people always use. So let's go through them one by one and we can talk about how to deal with them as we go along. What are we starting with? So, so the article that, that talks about this quite a bit, they said this feedback is insulting or inaccurate is actually one of the first toxic phrases that they had. And I would agree from the sense of there's clearly like some hypersensitivity to the criticism, seeing it as a personal attack, you know, maybe they're rejecting some form of feedback. But we also have to take into account that it's important how you speak to somebody, right? And delivery is also important. There's a lot of things that come across with this. So it's not just by saying this feedback is insulting. Maybe the feedback is actually insulting, but Mm -hmm. we're taking it from a perspective of somebody's explaining something to you that you may not necessarily agree with, or someone sharing some constructive feedback with you and you're taking it personally and thinking that like, no, there's, it's inconceivable that there's anything that I can improve in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that, that must be difficult to deal with though. If you're dealing, you know, if you need to speak to someone, you're trying to give them valuable feedback, but they're completely stonewalling any possibility mm-hmm. that, they're, that there's any flaw at all. How on earth do you tackle that? Well, I mean, definitely you want to, you want to kind of, Think of how are you saying things to people. That's extremely important. But also try to identify the, the way that they usually receive information. Because our tendency, Helen, is to talk to people the way that we want people to talk to us. Mm-hmm. But we forget that we also have to change our language uh, with the audience that we have in front of us. So don't nourish a person's sense of entitlement at all. But and and it's good to kind of obviously set boundaries and consequences with that. Call them out, but call them out respectfully. Okay. Right. And this this really goes for most of the the phrases that we're going to be talking about. It's just really about uh, trying to explain to a person not to justify why you were saying it. Don't get into all of that, because that's kind of where people like to to drop you into where you're kind of defending yourself. And then they're like, oh, see, you, you're quite defensive right now. And so, ah, okay. yeah, so you want to avoid that. The best thing to do is just, you know, to, for instance, if somebody were to say something on, on the lines of, you know, I'm sorry if my confidence or abilities make you feel insecure. Ooh. This is very entitled and extremely rude to say to a person. But these are toxic statements that can be said. So if somebody is, 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 is saying that to you, the best thing to do is you can kind of set a boundary and say, you know, I don't appreciate speaking to me in that way. If you feel a sense of uh, pride in, in your confidence and in your abilities, that's great. There is absolutely no reason for you to speak to me in that manner because there's no relation between your confidence and your abilities and my insecurities. Mm. Phrase number two that... Uh might come to light from someone who is selfish and titled is my ideas are valuable and always merit serious consideration. I always like this one, to be honest. Go. 
Go on. Expand on I that. hear this quite a bit. I mean, I mean, understandably so, and I am not blaming the new generation, but I would definitely say I hear this far more from the newer generations than I do from the from the older generations. But there is this tendency for the newer generations to kind of say, well, I deserve to be heard or I need to be heard. You need to listen to me. And in my head, I'm like, no, I actually don't. don't need to. <laughs> I really don't need to. And you don't deserve to be heard. There's nothing that has merited a reason for me to hear you, especially when you, when the, the conversation is coming at me, for instance, in this situation, in a rude or disrespectful manner. So mm-hmm. this having this full conviction in their and their only ideas and suggestions and assuming that these kind of you know, things are valuable and that other people have to listen to you. No, no, nobody has to listen to you. Nobody even has to acknowledge your existence. So <laughs> the fact that people do is a good thing. And the fact that people do, you want to honor and appreciate the people that do value you, but nobody actually has to. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the difference. Well, you know, many do argue that narcissism is closely related to entitlement. You know, do you, there's, could, could you shed some light on that relationship between narcissistic traits and you know, entitlement in psychology? Well, for sure. I mean, definitely a sense of entitlement is a symptom of narcissistic personality disorder, but it is not the factor. There are a lot of individuals that do not meet the narcissistic personality disorder criteria and are still and still have that sense of entitlement. I mean, to be fair, and I'm just being facetious here, but we would basically call all of the new generation narcissistic, narcissistic in nature if that's the case, but we can't say that. We also have to recognize that this new kind of mentality of I deserve, therefore I should have Mm -hmm. is being very difficult to kind of counter without becoming something that all of a sudden has turned into either you're offending me or you're some form of phobic in one way or another, or you're being racist or, or sexist or so all of a sudden we're taking things into massive extremes because someone is disagreeing with you. Now this kind of ties into this kind of idea of a zero-sum game in, in, in phrase number three, which is their success comes at the expense of my own. Mm-hmm. Can you unpack that a little bit for us, Dr. T? So this is um, the type of person that's kind of channeling um, their energy for their own growth and success, but they do so by kind of stepping on others and they don't see value in helping others and being collaborative mm-hmm. and rather than they just think about their own success and they don't really like to give credit for other people's success because they usually look at it from, um, oh, they got lucky or, you know, they got special treatment, whereas I'm such a hard worker and, you know, nobody does as much as I do. Nobody thinks like I do, you know, that kind of entitlement. Um, This actually speaks to something I was listening to, um, a podcast with a she is a psychologist, but she's a, she's a researcher, was a researcher at Harvard, who was bullied in adulthood. Um, and she's called Dr. Alison Cuddy, and she's done a she's done a lot of TED talks and um, kind of work around body language, which is what she's best mm-hmm. known for. But she's recently brought out a book about bullying in adulthood, and she identified almost identical to this phrase that people who bully. In, adult, in adulthood aren't always, you know, the, the classic, oh, but, you know, people who were bullied, bullied. She's like, no, a lot of people bully because they've got this mindset of zero sum. If someone succeeds, that's taking something away from me. Mm-hmm. And she ended up being discredited by, by a lot of her colleagues because her TED talk went viral and they didn't feel like she was qualified enough to get that amount of te- attention. And it was, it's a really fascinating one. I think it's a topic we should definitely return to because we do think about bullying being classroom based 
you know, right. um, or, you know, cyberbullying. But my goodness, it exists in adulthood far more than we care to we care to think about. So that just reminded me that this is this is something we should really talk about, because I think, you know, bullying in adult life can take many forms, whether it's in a relationship mm-hmm. or in a professional environment, and it can be absolutely devastating. So that For just sure. that just reminded me. So get yeah, it in the I mean, workplace bullying is extremely common. It's frightening. Not here, I'd have to say. Especially not on a birthday. Poonam's doing a great job today. Um, Phrase number four, we're going to run out of time, so we're going to try and get through them. Um, Why are you always trying to control me? Why would that speak to a selfish, um, selfish, a toxic selfish need? Because uh, we should talk about some of the benefits of being selfish before we head off. So it is this difficulty in taking feedback about changing behavior, even, you know, and, and I think... A lot of it comes from any kind of command or request or suggestion is kind of really taken personally and as and seen to try to c- control you. But in, in reality, if somebody's just trying to suggest something, if they're giving you a piece of advice, and this happens a lot usually with either um, a boss and an employee or parents and children where they feel the sense of like, why are you trying to control me when you give me a suggestion? Where in mm-hmm. fact, it just could really just be a suggestion. Yep. Um, last phrase is you're being disrespectful by not agreeing with me. Mm-hmm. So this was, it, it comes back to that point earlier about the, you know, I am entitled to have the floor. I am entitled to have your attention um, and refusing to acknowledge or see any value in someone else's perspective. Right. And, and anytime you see a different perspective, than your own, all of a sudden it's a personal attack. It's not an, a, just a differing opinion. It becomes, oh, you're disrespecting me. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a great message here from Rami saying, we all need to be selfish. When you take care of your needs and experience a fulfilling life, a new sense of giving will arise. Everyone around you will notice your generosity, but most important, the universe will start rewarding you with abundance. I would like to hear what you think. What's your take on um, Rami's message there? I think he's talking about, to my mind, non-toxic selfishness. Mm-hmm. Definitely. <laughs> Tell us Definitely. Li- uh, and I agree with that statement in the sense that when we take care of ourselves, we are better equipped to take care of others. I could not agree more. And I think, you know, it comes back to, we were just discussing parental burnout earlier, earlier with Anna Martha, and she was talking about, you know, especially in that parental space, taking a moment, fulfilling your own need. And I hate the phrase self-care. I hate it. It makes me think mm-hmm. of having like nail art, you know, and it's like, <laughs> no. Um, but recognizing when your needs are not being met, recognizing what you need to do in order to feel rested, fulfilled, sane, mm-hmm. Um, but I also think Rami's point's a really good one that, that, you know, it's not about putting yourself forward, but you need to recognize in life and adults, no one's coming to save you. Yes. <laughs> you <know>? yes. So, <laughs> so you know, sometimes you do need to be proactive and be assertive and, you know, really kind of take take control. But within the limits, without narcissism, without entitlement, without selfishness at the cost of other people. And I think that's kind of the crux of what we've been talking about today. Dr. T, we've run out of time. Um, Thank you so much for raising the topic. Some really interesting messages and takes on it. I think I'm I'm going to sign off with you with with a bit of Jerry Springer. Just be, you know... Be kind to yourself and each other. Okay, that's my final word of wisdom. Dr. T, always a pleasure. Thank you so, so much. Thank Have you. a good one. Dr. Thrive can be found at the Human Relations Institute and Clinic. Talking about getting into a routine there, everyone's running around and sometimes a bit of self-care can go right out of the window. 
nurse Sarah Louise is with us today, the founder of SLA Medical Clinic in the UK. But she is looking at setting up in Dubai and it's great to have you with us. How are you? I am good. Thanks for having me back. You are glowing. Oh, yeah. I'm in third trimester now. So how are you feeling? Okay. I think my energy has just come back mm-hmm. until I hit the Dubai heat. Yeah. <laughs> I went backwards uh, and now I feel like I'm resurfacing. Well, good, good skin word, resurfacing. Yeah. Um, for many people, coming back has been a bit of a shock to the skin system as well because different temperatures, you throw some AC in it, you know, air quality, dust. Is that something you've noticed in yourself or people that you're speaking to? Completely. And I have a lot of friends actually that work at Emirates Cabin Crew. So this is the common complaint of them. They're living in air conditioning. You're not getting any moisture in the air. And they're complaining of the fact that I just can't regulate my skin barrier. Mm. I'm dry one moment. I'm oily the next. I'm landing in this country, that country. But Dubai, like the sand and the dryness of the air quality, it is something that's really affected my skin. So how do you start to combat that? What advice are you giving crew and, and what changes have you made since landing in the UAE? So the biggest thing I've made is applying uh, some more moisturizer just to give me that moisture in the air. Um, I'm noticing I'm just more dehydrated. But then equally, as soon as I'm out in the elements, I'm more sweaty. <laughs> Being yeah. 10 kilos heavier, I am sweaty. <laughs> um, so I'm having to exfoliate more. So we're upping the exfoliation and bringing in a light moisturizer. Okay, right, guys, we are here to help if, if you are struggling. And we can talk about anything, ageing, acne, whatever's kind of stressing you out. But let's talk a little bit about a routine. In the morning, what should we be doing? Okay, so we just had a chat about this. It's been a huge culture shock to me uh, with my little one going to school in Dubai and getting on a bus at 6.50 a.m. Uh-huh. This is crippling. <laughs> I mean, what I would just like to say, I'd like to apologise to all parents in the Jumeirah area who have to see me at 7.30 in the morning yeah. and want to have a conversation. And I'm like, yeah, you're not seeing me at my finest. The sunglasses are on. It's a cap. Um, maybe some tinted moisturiser if I'm feeling a bit fancy. Mm. But most of the time, no, it's a, it's a shambles, to be honest. And th- but- this is it. Like I have three products that you can do. Really quick, really simple. If uh, I start to replace my cleansers with a toner. So in the morning, instead of cleansing and starting off that routine, actually use a toner. This can be something that is your mild lactic acid or a glycolic. That's going to take off all the grime, any retinols you've used the night before, any sweat that you might have had build up. And also, it's just a really nice way to balance the pH. I always throw on a vitamin C. It's simple. Guys, you can get these everywhere now. You can go to Boots, Sephora, anything with a nice peptide antioxidant in it is going to give you that bit of a glow. Also protect you against photo damage uh, and it's an active. Mm. The other one, which is my absolute non-negotiable, is tinted SPF, as you just said, right? It serves as moisturizer, it serves as protection, but it serves as coverage. Which I need. What are some, uh, we can we can talk about brands. I'm happy to give a shout out to some, some good people. Anything, anyone that you like on the tinted moisturizer front or this tinted sunscreen? Do you know, I started before I got into the medical side of the skincare element of just doing aesthetics and I was using actually the Garnier tinted SPF. Okay. Guys, this is it. actually a hidden secret. You will need to reapply it though. So if you're putting it under makeup, I wouldn't rely for its protection. But in the morning, if you're running to the gym, you're running down to the shop uh, or the children drop off, it's a perfect one. Is that the BB one? The BB cream. Yes. Yes. And it's a really good way for you to get used to using an SPF and just just a simple routine. But I'm not going to lie. My all-time favorite go-to is Obagi Medical. Okay. 50 SPF 
tint in it, soft, moisturising, hydrating, and it lasts mostly all day. Goodness, Sarah, in the studio today answering your skincare questions. I've just had one in from a parent saying, my 14-year-old has watched so much social media um, and is now applying all sorts of creams and serums and I swear it's making her skin worse. What would a normal skincare routine for a 14-year-old be with some acne? Yeah, so this was actually on my list to talk about today because, you know, as as the children are getting older, they're getting more conscious about their skin. They are becoming more proactive, I must say, than what I ever was at that age. Oh, I mean, I was proactive, but I was proactive with the most horrendous chemicals. Like yeah. your Oxy and, you know, it was making... Proactive, it... the brand. Yeah. Remember? Oh, and that, that's... Um, <laughs> those... Uh, kernels with the peach pits in, like the exfoliator oh, stuff, the yes. St. Ives that just yep. scratch. The peach one, yeah, yeah. that was great. <laughs> brutal, absolutely brutal. So they've got some good choices now, they but do. it does sound like social media might be telling people they need to be doing more than they should. Agree. So the one thing I always say for parents, mums, dads, anyone implementing a skincare routine into someone under 16 years old might have a bit of oiliness, bacteria, reactive skin, try and get them on a wash, a cleanser that has got glycolic or salicylic acid in it. That is perfect. They don't need to be going into huge amounts of moisturizers. They've got enough oil in their skin and their sebaceous glands are trying to regulate. Mm -hmm. But when they come home from school, they're dirty, they're grimy, they've touched their face, they've got bacteria. All of these blackheads are starting to produce. They've got comedones. They're starting with the acne. The wash is perfect. Twice a day, once in the morning, once at the night. That is it. I like the CeraVe one, the SA one. It's salad. It's good. Super easy and it's not it's it's not um it's not expensive really. No. How do you feel about makeup wipes? I'm so against makeup wipes, <laughs> against them. I'm actually against baby wipes as well. Um, and the reason for that is the content of even though they say there's no alcohol, there is fragrance and it's burning skins. It's wearing back that top layer, which protects our skin. And it's letting us exposed to all of the bacteria and everything that we don't want to enter. I know the convenient guys, but don't opt for them. Opt for micellar water instead. So much easier. There you go. And better for the environment, since we're talking climate conversations today. A nice little muslin cloth, a little face wash, a little micellar water. Um, what about treatments right now? What's what's hot in terms of skincare? What and what are you seeing on social media where you're like, oh my goodness, put it down? What's hot? What's not? There is so much on social media. Um, We've actually adopted something into SLA Medical, which is quite cool, and I do like it. But it came up with this concept called icing. And you would put ice, I guess, out of the freezer and just put it onto your face. And the idea was it causes, you know, a little bit of vasoconstriction, all of the pores close up, the skin, it's really hydrating for it. They then brought out these icy globes, which are quite cool. And we use them in the clinic because they're really nice and they're a nice additive onto a medical facial. But in terms of do they do anything there's no evidence guys it's just a luxury pop them on your face they feel nice especially after a chemical peel it's lovely um but as far as efficacy i'm not really sold what about the led devices because i'm seeing an awful lot of people on instagram who are looking frankly terrifying with at home led face masks and devices what about the research into that and is that something you've been using in clinic at all 
Yeah, we actually adopted the Dermalux, which uh, also the hydrofacial has an LED canopy now, and they are really effective. If you understand your lights and your colors and the efficacy, there is a lot of science behind them. But the actual makeup of the machine has to be correctly formulated because it has to penetrate a certain depth to be able to get a certain result. At-home LEDs are not going to have that power. They're not going to be able to have the controlled element to get into the dermal layer that you need. So most likely, unless you sit under your LED mask for 12 hours at home, <laughs> you're probably wasting your money. But I am for LED, yes. Um, let's go to the text line, 4001. Um, Moggy saying, I've been on a mission to improve my skin for the last year. I'm now using, okay, ready? It's quite a list. AHA, BHA, vitamin C, niacinamide, uh, retinol and enzyme peels. And I feel like I'm using something different trying to get flawless skin. I'm acne prone. It's not going to happen. I don't mind the ritual of it all. I quite enjoy it, but it is starting to get more stressful. Um, I want to strip it back to basics and I would love advice on how to tackle the acne. Really good question. So AHA, BHA, just to put it really simple, are both exfoliators. Alpha hydroxy acids, beta hydroxy acids. So you'll have your alpha hydroxy acids, which are more superficial, and your betas, which are your more salicylics, which can penetrate a little bit deeper. She did say, I'm acne prone. So I would ditch your AHA and only use your BHA. That would be the number one switch out I would do. Use your exfoliator once a day only. And that would be a morning, preferably. Vitamin C is really good for repair and inflammation, as well as niacinamide. If you've got niacinamide instead of the vitamin C, that's absolutely fine. It's vitamin B, and that's going to break down any redness and irritation. You're doing a really good job by using your retinols, vitamin A's. Keep that at nighttime. And then a moisturizer if you do need one, but try and rein it in. One exfoliator, one vitamin A, one vitamin B, one vitamin C. Okay, that is it. And then really take down the cleansing as well. Everyone over cleanses these days. One cleanse of a PM in the morning, wake up and use your toner. Can I ask you, if someone was to give you, I don't know, let's say, let's say, let's, let's say a thousand dirhams to spend on a gadget for at-home use, for skincare, skin boosting, what is worth our money? Or are we better spending that money on treatments outside of the home? To be honest, gadget-wise, I've done quite a bit of research. <laughs> I don't like at-home gadget devices because you've got your facial massages, you've got your vibration ones, you've got your sonic brushes. It's endless, right? It is a really captivating market. Mm -hmm. It sounds great, but there is no evidence. So if you don't want to waste your money, I always say this, if you've got endless amounts of money, go for it. But if you've got a thousand dirhams, head yourself down to a clinic and go and get a hydrofacial. You know, you're going to clean out your skin, you're going to get an exfoliation, you're going to get extractions, you're going to get a chemical peel, you're going to get a lot. And actually, it's going to do more stimulation to your cells than any of the above of using anything at home. Love that advice. I'm messaging, asking for your details. What's the best way of getting in touch? Yes. So I guess the best way these days is social media platform. We have SLA Medical on Instagram or Nurse Sarah Louise. You can send us DMs. I'm at the back of that. Also, we are looking to open our first branch of our SLA Skin Bar in Dubai, which is really exciting. And so keep a lookout on SLA Medical because everything will be on there. Thank you so much.
You've saved okay. us all some money today. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I'm feeling a bit more hopeful about looking a bit more human tomorrow morning at the drop off. <laughs> Nasara, thank you so much. I will, if you want to send me the word skin, I will send you the details so you can find out more. But great resources across both of your platforms. So thank you so, so great. much. And we'll see you soon before before splashdown, before baby comes. Yeah, hopefully. How many weeks are you now? I am just in my third trimester. Okay. So 10 weeks to go. Dum, dum, dum. It's so exciting. I have to say, glowing. A perfect advert for all of that education. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.